Hello everyone and welcome to When Life Gives You Lemons, our wee podcast about tackling and coping with some of life's challenges, hosted by me, Jenny McIntyre, and founder of Let's, Michael Byrne. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 7 of When Life Gives You Lemons. Um, it's Jenny McIntyre and as always I'm joined um, with Michael Byrne and today we're also joined uh, by Aaron Connolly. Um, how are you both? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm good. It's absolutely glorious weather today. I can't believe it. Yeah, I, yeah, I was I was out the back earlier on playing football with my wee guy. Um, and it's amazing how quickly you can get tired out when you're chasing a three and a half year old around your back garden. <laughs> how are you, Aaron? Yes, I'm fantastic, thank you. As you say, the weather has been unbelievable today. So Similar to Michael, I spent some time out the back chasing my four-year-old around, <laughs> and Michael, it uh, only gets harder. <laughs> to catch you know, him. I, I kind of think that I'm reasonably fit, but I'm not. And you know, it's a bad day when you think I'm not as fit as a three and a half-year-old. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I hope everybody's got their sun cream on as well. Well, and uh, you know, I know you come from Ayrshire, um, <laughs> Jeff, but in Glasgow on a day like this, there's taps off and no sun cream. <laughs> Baby oil zoot. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, so, Erin, uh, you run, um, uh, is it a charity, sorry, Time to Tackle, or? Uh, no, so at the minute we are pending registration to become a social enterprise. Right. Uh, so at the minute, I suppose you would just say it's a community group. Right, okay, okay. Um, but we, are, we have um, applied for a registration to become a community interest company uh, and that will, will help us grow and develop further. Sure. And um, what is it you guys can actually do then and how did it all kind of come about? Yeah, uh, so Time to Tackle, very simply, our tagline is football therapy. So... Our aim and our ethos is around helping people who need assistance or need help with their mental health, need help with their physical health. We can help them improve that using football uh, and also just helping people engage in a peer support group that they may not have, uh, tackle loneliness where we can um, and also tackle stigmas. You know, we do a lot of campaigning around the stigma of mental health and things like that. So sure. that's, where the, that's where the tagline time to tackle came from. In fact, uh, Myself and my wife one night had been working on the idea for a while around using football for positive and for good. And we were trying to come up with a name uh, and we were using various different football actions like shoot and pass and tackle. And uh, tackle just seemed to fit with what we were trying to achieve. So we called it Time to Tackle. I think it's a, a fantastic uh, name, Erin. And I, I know a wee bit about it because we've spoken in the past and I just want to... Reflecting what Jenny said, it's an absolute honour to, to have you uh, join us today. Um, I know we've known each other now maybe three or four months and I'm complete, like Jenny, complete admiration of what yourself and, and uh, Siobhan are doing. So, and I know that you're a busy man and really appreciate you giving up your time this afternoon to join us. No, I mean, thank you, firstly. I think for me, the, the, it's a privilege for me that people want to help us and want to support us in this manner and ha- help us get the message out there. I think, and I'm sure we'll speak about it, but I've had a really difficult past with my own mental health. Um, you know, most of my adult life has been a struggle and I'm very open about that. Uh, and that's what's driven, you know, time to tackle and where it's come from. Um, but you, I, as I've said... Do you think times, you get you know, to the point of where you, you're now as open as you are, and has been a difficult journey and, and sometimes not being open has contributed towards the difficulties that you've, you've maybe had in the past? 
Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I think you know, I've said it many times. Football was my first love, and I played football since I was knee high to a grasshopper. Here's a Glasgow saying, but you know, I remember kicking a ball around at four or five years old and telling myself back then that I was going to play for Celtic and things like that. And you know, and I, and I had a reasonably good youth career and I done well in, in my early life. And and football didn't quite work out for me, but it's been the constant in my life. Mm-hmm. where jobs have come and gone and friends have come and gone and even family to a certain extent have come and gone in my life and, and things have been difficult. Football's always been there for me. Football has always given me that release when things haven't been good. And in fact, you know, I'm sure we'll touch on the suicide attempt last year, but part of what led me to that was I had stopped engaging in football and I'd, I'd stopped getting that release and I'd put so much of my, my focus into other parts of life that when I wasn't getting that, that release and that energy release and that endorphin release from taking part in physical activity, namely football for me, and, and, and wasn't engaging in the camaraderie within the changing room and stuff, I felt more alone than ever, and that's what took me down the path of, you know, the suicide attempt, but I think for me, and Michael, you've we've spoken about it, but I've, I've had, you know, diagnosed with a mental health issue with depression and anxiety, I was diagnosed five, five or so years ago, but as I look back now, having come through it, having learned and done the education that I've done and having the lived experience here that I have, I can really trace these these things back to being 14 and 15 years old at, at high school, and it's, it's especially the anxiety aspect of it. So I'm probably about 12 or 13 years now of having ups and downs and struggles with mental health. And to touch on the part, the part about talking about it, you know, I, I started speaking openly, I think, in 2017, 2018 time. I think that's when it probably slowly started to change for me. I had dips since then, but over the past year, you know, coming out of hospital where I spent a period of time and being really honest, I think, is the key. I think I was talking about it, and that's great. But I think being really honest with myself, firstly, and then being able to convey that honesty and into the public domain and, and with the people close to me as well who are my support network, being able to convey that honesty with them has helped me make a real difference. Yeah, I think that one of the, the real barriers, certainly, I don't know, we spoke about this and for me as well, was the inability to actually be honest and be open with other people about it. Because I, for me personally, you, you fear the judgment, you fear that people are going to look at you differently. And as you probably said, as you said there, you know, particularly when you're playing football, there is that camaraderie, there's that almost mentality of we're all in this together but when you start to struggle with your mental health you start to retreat in your own head and believing that nobody's going to understand you'll be treated differently you can't really talk about this so you kind of keep it all in yeah well for sure is an aspect of that and you know speaking about football and I've said this so many times now and I will continue to reiterate it but how often have you spoken about a football player being injury prone or he's got a bad knee or, you know, criticising players almost for being, for having physical ailments that are out with their control. Sure. I think for me, I always felt that if I was going to get criticised for pulling my hamstring when I couldn't, when I had no real control over that, you know, if I start speaking about not feeling good, then the criticism is going to be tenfold. So I think that's what made it really difficult in that environment initially was, you know, if I get criticised for going over my ankle, pulling a hamstring or something like that, then I'm going to sure as hell get criticised for speaking about not feeling good today and, not, and being unable to play. So that made it really difficult. There's obviously that macho man image within men's football and that you can't show any weakness and that results come before anything else. 
you know, a lot of the stuff that I don't like about football and reality that people, it's, it's painted and portrayed as this team sport. And in fact, I think a lot of the time it can be quite individualistic. Mm-hmm. And, and I've taken part in that myself where, where you want your friends to not do so well because you're sitting on the bench watching and you want to get onto the park. So I think that that made it difficult in that environment for me. Um, and trying to keep up that image, I used to call it my mask. And I had many masks. And my mask at football was being the fun guy, the guy who was at the centre of attention in the dressing room, you know, taking the mic out of everyone else and, you know, just pushing all that energy out away from me, pushing that focus away from me. And do you think that, um, obviously, um, kind of being 13, 14 and starting to feel like that and keeping all these feelings inside and feeling like you can't reach out and be open, do you think the the stigma of that has kind of um, has improved over the years, I suppose, and, and people are in a situation now where they maybe feel that they can be a bit more open and honest or, or do you feel we're just kind of in the same kind of place when it comes to sports like football and uh, things like that? Uh, it's a good question. I think it, I think we're seeing changes. I think we're seeing changes in society. I think football was a reflection of society, albeit probably a little bit behind. So football always has a bit of catching sure. up to do with, with anything. Um, if I look at it personally from my own experiences, I think I've been invited to speak to sort of 13, 14, 15 year old kids when I was that age. That never happened, whether that be at football clubs or mm-hmm. in schools. There was no one coming to my school from outside who had had mental health issues and, and had to sort of back around their story that I've had, you know, and were being invited in to speak to pupils. Whether for me, Michael, you've probably done it too, but I, I've been in schools and talking to pupils, so I think that. It's testament to the individual schools Absolutely. and the people who arrange things mm-hmm. like that. And, and it's testament to the kids that they're probably, the kids are probably driving that as well as, as, as they want to learn about it as part of their curriculum. While mental health is becoming so apparent in society, I think then we're definitely seeing changes. I would like to see it more. I would like it. I'd like more schools to engage in it, of course. I'd like more football clubs to engage in it, of course. I think we're seeing that start to happen, but part of the work that I do a lot is to really just try and push that message that we can always do more. Yeah, I, I totally get that. You know, I, <clears throat> I look back and think that, a bit like yourself, that if there had been people around back when I was younger, and I know it's the same, that you can relate to, uh, or that you can have, you think that you can have a conversation with, or actually they felt how I feel. Uh, and I think now what we're, re- we're realising more and more is that people who have lived experiences and are willing to talk about them, like yourself and share that it makes it real for people and people can actually engage better with people that they see and think do you know what I, I felt that and if I felt that and that guy's felt that then it's normal it's all right and that starts to bring the conversation out more doesn't it yeah I think I mean there was one specific example and I won't name the school or anything like that but I went to a school and and they asked me look we're going to get the most difficult kids from the year group and ask you to speak to them and, and you know, a lot of kids can be difficult for a lot of reasons, but specifically for these kids, it was a lot around, you know, their lifestyles away from school and the family's lifestyles and the deprivation in the area and things like that. And they said, well, you speak to them for 45 minutes. Um, and I went in and I'd done the 45-minute talk and, and then I'd done a 15-minute Q&A with the kids at the end. And, and the teacher came up to me at the end and he said, I've never, ever had the kids be quiet for 45 minutes ever until you came in to speak to them. And I think that's because what the kids hear from me is someone who's got that lived experience, probably similar upbringing to them. I'm not too I'm not too far away from from them in age, and you know, twelve, thirteen years isn't much. And 
you know, an ability, like you say, to relate my life and my experiences to what they may have experienced in the past. And the guys, the kids were brilliant, you know, like I had to dash away after 15 minutes. I could have sat in Q&A with them for probably a full half an hour and the real engagement and I had a couple of parents reach out to me and stuff at the time about that. And that for me was just, it's an absolute privilege and honour. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the ability, to, the, being able to do that now will hopefully make a difference to some of these young people. Absolutely, like, I think it's kind of making them feel that you really aren't, as much as you think you might be, you really are not alone in all this. Yeah, I think that's absolutely key. And as I say, I look back now and I, I wonder, would 15-year-old me sitting in my maths class, you know, I was the kid at school who, if I made a mistake and I had maths daughter and the person next to me had a rubber on their desk, I would be scared to actually, I would be terrified to even approach asking for that rubber. Yeah. You know, that's the, the level anxiety that I suffered. I, I wonder now sometimes if there was someone like me, for example, who came into my school all those years ago and spoke to me, would I have handled things differently? I probably would have. But then there's the flip side that it, that would have changed the course of my life. Yeah, I, 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 I think what and, was, uh, Aaron, is that I, I agree with what you, everything you said there and Jenny's question. Uh, I think times are changing, but I think what we're also seeing is that there are different ways of dealing with different issues, you know, so the standardisation of how you would deal with mental health in the past would be far different than now, the options that you've got, like, you know, yourself going yeah. to schools and, and different things, those options, well, I, I'm the same as you, I, I kind of wish I was a bit of a time traveller, and would I have, you know, would the 50-year-old me go back and talk to the 26-year-old me about stuff, would I have listened? But at least it would have been nice to hear it. But I think now, because there are so many options with people coming forward and saying, you know what, I, I, I'm happy to talk, I can talk, I've got an experience and it can relate to people, that it's a different option and it's a fantastic option. Yeah, oh, absolutely, I think that's true. And, uh, and I, I just think that, it's just part of my life, you know, as I look back on that, you know, that's cool. Could it have been different? Would it have been different? And I think, but I think it's a real reflection, as you say, of society moving forward that we are starting to see things like that. And hopefully that will continue and hopefully that will make it easier for people of a young age to speak openly about it and be more and and, and have the opportunity to engage help earlier. You know, I'm very big on, we hear a lot about crisis intervention, you know, a lot of the work I want to do and moving forward and a lot of what we're trying to achieve through Time to Tackle as a group is looking at the prevention of crisis so that we've got less people needing to be intervened on. And, and that's sort of where I see my future, hopefully, you know, as we progress and, and develop Time to Tackle into all the different ideas that we're working on. But uh, I think the prevention aspect for me, I feel, is probably where I'm more suited to being involved in than intervening on crisis point. So I think, like, when we talk about lived experience, I think, we share a lot, um, you know, I've lived experience at different times in my life and stuff like that. And I know that you spoke there about probably your anxiety and depression starting around about 14, 15. And, and, you know, that was really just a catalyst for things moving forward. Would you mind sharing with us how that period in time from maybe up to 14 to 15 to just about a year ago, how that all kind of took place and what it culminated in just a year ago, if that would be okay? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you, as I said, I can trace things like back to an early age, and I, I was a talented footballer back then. I hate saying that word, but I was. Uh, and uh, I went, I moved away from home at 15 years old. And Hibs took me out of school and uh, moved me away. And I signed the court, I signed the three year contract at the time. And you know, having put so much work in 
uh, I thought that was it. That you know, I'd done it. I'd, I'd, I'd achieved my goal. Um, I, I was. I'd convinced, probably convinced myself that this guy was the limit now, and I was just going to keep progressing. Uh, but really, for, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, I'm Glasgow born and bred. I moved. 45, 50 miles through Edinburgh at 15 years old. Um, I was stuck in a flat with a 17-year-old, just the two of us. And I found it so, so tough. Uh, you know, I, my anxiety was through the roof. Um, I wasn't speaking to family. I, I can't even remember. I probably had a mobile back then, but I can't remember really engaging with family much. Uh, I thought I was in love at the time with a girl from school. There was just a lot of stuff going on that made it so difficult to transition at such a young age. And, about three or four months into my three-year contract, I just went to the club. I started avoiding training and things like that. I was coming home and then travelling through Edinburgh day on day uh, just to try and, you know, help myself feel better almost. You know, it was all, it was purely mental, but I didn't understand that at the time. And I just went to the club and eventually said, look, I can't do this anymore. Um, and I turned 16 by this point. And, and I think this probably shows the difference between then and now. that The football club... The, the director of football at the club at the time and the, and the head of youth development at the time let a 16-year-old boy come in and say three or four months into a, a three-year contract, look, I can't do this anymore. I don't like living away. I need to cancel my contract. Now, I'd done that meeting alone with no parents, with no one. Yeah. They let me make that decision and just let me go and just let me leave. And they never followed up or checked up on me. And I'm not belittling the club by any by any means. I just think that was probably how society was at that time. They probably yeah. didn't understand. Um but they, I, I would hope to God now that if a 16-year-old approached any club in the way that I did back then, the club would try and work for them. They would try and ask them what was going on, but that was never... The questions were never posed at me, so I was never had to answer them. I just left. Uh, I spent a little bit of period of time uh, homeless then, at a young age, um, in a homeless unit down in Queen's Park. And if I went, and if I went back home after that, uh, I don't want to say too much about the family dynamics of it, but... There was a an expectation on me having left school and stuff so young and an expectation that I would move on through the football field when I a lot of people seen it seen it as me quitting and again that's probably just down to the misunderstanding of what mental health was then and what I was actually going through and my on my inability to probably convey what I was thinking or what was going on in my mind. So I never ever went back to my home. Uh, I've never lived at home since. Um, but I spent about a period of time homeless at sixteen. I got put up in a in a unit down in Queens Park, uh, Queens Park Hotel was at the time. Uh, and every day there was just chaos happening. You know, there was there was obviously people with addictions and all that sort of stuff. That for a sixteen year old boy, I was terrified. I was terrified. I had very little money and stuff at the time. And every day I would nip out really early in the morning to get my supplies, whatever I was eating, and it would just be like noodles because I had a kettle. And I just always remember buying so many packets of noodles that you could make with the boiling water and basically living off them for God knows how long. I thought it was maybe six weeks or so. And uh, locking my door and no leaving because I was just so terrified of what was on the other side of that door. The police were around almost every day and it was terrifying. Um, and eventually, after a while doing that, my family got back in touch with me, found out what had all happened. Um, uh, and they got back in touch and my uncles took me in for a period of time while I figured out what I had to do with my life and I got back to football uh, I signed for the United and very quickly progressed into the first team as I, again, still being a young player so 17, 18, I was around the first team 
and I was enjoying football for a period of time again until I made that jump again and <laughs> being a 17 year 18 year old boy with anxiety issues jumping into a dressing room where there was guys who were 35, 30, 25 just a full spectrum of men um, the club were going through a difficult stage we were fighting relegation in the championship uh, and I was flitting in and out of the team and football change rooms we've spoken about full of, they were, they're full of people that macho man image is still alive and well and 10 years ago it was alive and well and uh, young boys are here a lot a lot being spoken about about young boys coming in and learning the way and giving first team players the respect they deserve and and taking it on the chin when a first team player takes the piss out of you and whatever else excuse my language but you know I, I now at 28 years old I can understand that at 17 and 18 years old I couldn't cope with that you know I thought mm-hmm. these guys were being personal and they were attacking me and, and I just found that so difficult to deal with and I, I barely spoke and I, I talked to some of the guys now that I played with back then and you almost can't believe the person I am now because I never spoke. I, I spent 18 months in and around the first team and I just didn't speak to anyone. I came in, I trained, I went home. Uh, I was working in a kitchen at the time because I was then maintaining a modern flat and stuff like that. And it was just, I, I hate sounding like pity party, but I was, I'd grown up too soon almost and uh, yeah. I was being forced to do these, to, into these situations. And again, football just became a real difficult thing for me it almost became a chore again because I just found it so tough to deal with the anxieties that I was suffering you know that the inability to speak to anyone about it and being in an environment where results were all that mattered and you know being the young boy you were subject to not abuse probably isn't the right word but you were always the butt of the joke mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. it, it, for me it was so th- it was so difficult so difficult um and then I ended up you know, got to the end of one season and I didn't even go back to see the club. I think you're you're meant to go back and my contract was expiring and you're supposed to go back and do the old handshake. It's not going to work out, all that sort of nonsense. And I just knew I knew it wasn't going to work. I knew I didn't want to be involved anymore. Uh, and I just left. And by that time, I was that summer, I was turning 20. Um, and I started, I'd started work in my current place. I started opening the mail in the office. Um, so I, I made the decision that my career wasn't going to be football by this point and it was going to be in finance um, and I just started work there I got myself I think I moved flats about that time as well I bought my first flat about that time um, and for the, from the age of 20 to 27 uh, so I had it up in mind but from 20 to 27 my, my life has been depressing episodes of depression then fine for a while in episodes of depression. I didn't know what depression was until I was 23 years old. Um, me and my fiance at the time, but wife, Siobhan, were expecting our first child in 2015. Uh, and I'd never had time off work with depression. Michael, I know you speak about it a lot, putting the suit on, going to work. Uh, I'd done that up until 23. Never ever taking time off. Never had a day off for a cold. You know, and it just I was constant. Mm-hmm. Very quickly went from male boy to almost running a team at twenty three years old in three years. You know, stuff that people hadn't done before because I was just it was my my pure focus. It was my escapism became work at that point, and I was mm-hmm. playing football on the side. And uh, in early two thousand fifteen, and I I say this not lightly at all. This is God's honest truth. For twelve weeks. 
the only movement I made was to walk. I would wake up whenever I'd wake up. If I got sleep, uh, I would walk downstairs onto the couch and I would plant myself on the couch. My wife was just finishing her nursing degree at the time, so she was doing, she was out doing 12 hour shifts uh, on placement. She would come, she would go out seven in the morning, come home seven at night. I would not have moved from the couch, not for the toilet, nothing. For 12 hours a day, for about 12 weeks in total, uh, I just didn't move. And it was at that point that Siobhan eventually said to me, you need to see someone. And it was only because she had a medical background mm-hmm. uh, that she understood something wasn't right. Um, and she told me, you need to go see someone. So I went to my GP. And I remember this meeting as clean as day. I'll never forget it. You know, I think on average you get six minutes for a GP. I walked in and told him basically what I just said there. I've not moved and I feel, just feel like I can't move. I actually at times felt like I was chained down, like there was chains around me being held down. Like mm-hmm. I just couldn't get up. My, my dog would squeal at me to go out to the toilet and I would just ignore, ignore, ignore. I'd maybe let him out the patio door, go back to the couch, or I'd leave the patio door open all day so he could go in and out and I'd just stay in the couch. And I uh, told the doctor, doctor said, right, You've got depression, um, probably you've got depression, anxiety. Here's sertraline, um, 50 milligrams at a time. Take this once a day, a couple of weeks, you'll be fine. I left that doctor's meeting, I remember it clear the day on the phone. That's me. I'm like, I'll be fine. I've got the diagnosis, I can label myself now. I'm, a dep- I'm depressed, mm-hmm. great, but I at least understand that I'm depressed. I've got the tablet that's mm-hmm. going to fix it. If I take this, then great. Uh, and six weeks later, I was still lying on the same couch, still not moving. Doesn't and and I think that was because I still had no understanding. I, I had no idea what it was. I was just being told, "We'll take this, and you'll feel better." Mm-hmm. And yeah, this was where I do a lot of work in speaking about people now. Is that there's still there's so much more to this than just taking a tablet and you'll feel yeah. better. Like there's so much that I wasn't doing right in terms of I wasn't talking. I wasn't eating properly. I had no routine in my life. Um, you know, I wasn't exercising like I usually would. I'd gone from someone who exercised five times a week to exercising zero times because I just mm-hmm. stopped football in there. At that time, I was actually feigning an injury, pretending to the club I was injured so I didn't need to go. I was isolating because I wasn't talk- talking to friends. Uh, I was isolating myself from work. Everything I'd stopped everything in the hope that this tablet would cure it because I just had no understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And eventually, you know, I came, came round, or not came round, but, you know, came through it, got back to work. Uh, my boy was born. That gave me a fresh impetus and a, and a fresh, you know, something different, something to focus on when my wee boy was born in July of 2015. So that probably helped for a period of time, for a couple of years, actually, for about two years, I was probably quite good um, until 2017. Uh, and then I had another huge crash in 2017. Uh you know, I don't speak about this a lot, actually, what happened then, but that's 2017, I was first taken to hospital, um, suicidal, you know, really, really suicidal. Um, it's not something I've spoken about because the focus has all been in the last year, but I remember sitting down in the hospital and speaking to uh, a doctor, or, or, no, he was a nurse, the guy was a nurse and he'd be brilliant. And uh, that was the first time I got access to the CPN sort of type work and CBT mm-hmm. work. Uh, that all came from that, so... I had a crash in 2017 where I was off work again, I think about six to eight weeks maybe. And then I, as I got to the end of that and came back to work again, uh, 
from 2017 to April 2019 for about 18 months straight I worked because I think at this point in my life I had decided right I've beaten this off I've beaten two bad episodes of this off now uh, 2015 2017 I beat them off now's the time to get my life right like I knew I could be successful mm-hmm. in my career I, I knew I was good at it I'd proven that myself so I thought right this is it we can in the next two years we're going to do x x and x and I'm going to do it all and in 18 months I trebled my salary wow um I went from I went from being a team leader to running a full department mm-hmm. uh, and just about trebled my salary in 18 months by working 15 hours a day every single day yeah. and probably two weekends a month and it was just that pure relentless desire that if I can make sure that we are living a good life, that whole materialistic nonsense that you see. And yes, everyone loves having nice new things and all that. So if I could give my family that, if I could give my boy a better start than the life than I had, if I could make sure that me and my wife had nice cars and we had a nice house, then everything would be okay because I felt good mm-hmm. or I felt or I'd beaten this off twice. So if I put my put my desire into this, put my all my efforts into this, then everything would be good. And uh I just crashed. As I'm sure you can imagine, you've been able to work like that for 18 months. April, yeah, a- yeah. April last year, I just absolutely crashed. Um, my wife had, uh, had had a surgery um, in early April, or mid-April roughly. Um, so she had been bed-bound for two weeks. Uh, I had started to feel myself not feeling good and I knew I could see the signs and I knew, I knew something wasn't right, but Despite all the learnings and everything from the past, you know, I just kept on saying, doesn't matter, we'll work, work, work. I remember uh, we got her a new car. I remember, I remember it clear. At the end of March, we picked up her brand new car, straight off, you know, that whole street, like, straight off the showroom floor. You know, that's meant to make you happy. Didn't, didn't feel a thing. Got into April, just really struggling. Knew I was struggling, but my mind started to tell me, I can't speak to Siobhan about this because, and she hates me for saying it, but it's the truth. Can I, I can't go back to Siobhan and say, look, 2015 we went through this, 2017 we went through this. See now in 2019, despite everything, despite coming back already, despite all the work that we've put in, I feel like this again. Like, mm-hmm. I, yeah. Emotionally, that's hard. Emotionally drained, physically exhausted, mentally just had nothing left to offer to life. Like that's how it felt, and and it very quickly changed from thoughts of I can't speak to her about this because I can't put this on her to I'm a burden to her and really like I everything I do, no matter what I do, it, it's just no good enough. I always I always end up in this place. I always end up in this dark place again, and that's where my that's where my mind took me. Um, in a couple of weeks of doing that. And, Michael, you've heard me talk about it, but that inner bully, that inner person who just beats you up all the time and bangs at your mind and tells you you're no good enough. And a couple of weeks of that, a couple of weeks of me telling myself I'm the biggest self-loathing in the world. Oh, it's a resort to type all the time. It's self-loathing, it's self-hate. It's you've not done enough, you're not good enough. As I went down that route, mixed with the feeling of I can't speak to Siobhan about this because she's lying in her bed. She's just had an actual physical surgery. I kind of go tell her I feel like rubbish mm-hmm. when she's actually struggling here. They, that they, that combination was just a cocktail, a recipe for disaster for my life. Um, and I remember the final week, I say final week, like I'd 
I think it did happen, but I remember the final week leading up to the, the suicide attempt. And I was staying in Edinburgh because I was working so much. Uh, the work had put me up in a hotel, so back to that old, the same thing, that isolation, you know, staying away from friends mm. and family, that, that took me to... That that week I was staying away and the suicidal thoughts were starting to come maybe mid middle of the week or so. And I knew one of my friends or someone had worked alongside for a long time was leaving on the on the Friday night and there was a whole do happening about it. So I knew I was probably going to be going to that on the Friday night. So the suicidal thoughts were coming and going for a few days and just remember waking up on the Friday morning and clear as day just saying to myself, this is it, today's the day. And I'm still ashamed to admit this at times. But, Michael, you could probably resonate this with your background in the story, but see the relief of not having any thoughts mm-hmm. anymore. Because you just go... It, it becomes more that I'm done. Like, no longer do I need to think about it. Right? I'm a, I've yeah. convinced myself I'm, so, I'm a burden. So there's a real life to go, I don't need to do this anymore. Everyone else will be better off without me. I make a joke of it sometimes, but I've got life insurance and I've also got, I'm also insured through my work. I wasn't clever enough or smart enough in that in the things to check if the life insurance pays out for suicide. I just convinced myself that it did. Mm-hmm. So I, I convinced yeah. myself that, oh, it's all right. You know, Siobhan and Rudy will get X amount of money. That's what you do. X amount of money and, you know, they can go buy the, an even bigger house and, and they can start a fresh new life and I won't be there to be a burden anymore. They won't need to worry about me anymore because I'm not be here. So they can just go and live their lives without the pain that I'm bringing on them. And that's what my mind took me to. Uh, and made the decision on the Friday morning. And then there was a relief. And uh, as I say, I'm ashamed to admit it. But the, the, there was a, set, a weight off my shoulders because I, and people have mentioned it to me since I've spoken about this. People in the office and stuff have said that day, everything that happened and then what happened that night, we would never, ever put you as the person who would go and try and commit suicide that night because you were happy you were laughing, joking and that was all just the relief mm-hmm. of it and probably a little bit of a mask to try and force people's attention mm-hmm. away um, so we've finished up the working day uh, I went out that night I had a couple of beers, I really want to make it clear to everyone who hears this this was not an instinctive decision the alcohol played no part in this I was merely, I yeah. was merely, you know, finishing up, and and almost what I thought was a duty to go to that night out, you know, just making sure that I ticked off all the boxes that I had to do, uh, and then I was going to go end my life, um, and I'll probably be emotional at the minute, but I'll just keep talking. Uh, I've, as I said, had suicidal thoughts for on and off for many years, so I, I always had plans. I knew if I was at home what my plan would be and I knew if I was at work what my plan would be. So I, that's always been planned and printed in my mind. Never shared. Yes. Never shared until the point of it actually happening. But yeah, I made my way to a train track where I knew that trains go past. Yeah, like freight trains and stuff go past really quick. Um, yeah. And hand on heart, I tried to walk. Everything in my body was telling me to walk. I sent you on a message a really rubbish message basically just saying I love her hey, I'm so sorry look after Rudy there was a bit of expletives around the people in my life who I felt could have done more for me at that point um, yes. and turn my phone off because 
turned the phone off because I knew they were trying. I knew as soon as that message hit her, hit her inbox that she would the search party would be called. So the phone went off so they couldn't track me. Uh, and I tried to walk, and I walked. Just everything my body was telling me that this was what I wanted to do and what I had to do. And uh, mm. I just held this scream of daddy, and it was like it was like my wee boy was there behind me, mm-hmm. and it was just. I don't know, I still don't know what it is, I can't even explain it, but it was enough for me to turn or to, to like, just to stop me walking. Uh, mm-hmm. And I thought he was there for a minute, and um, I just remember sobbing. I remember sitting down and sobbing, and then running. I got up and I ran, and I just ran to uh, Princey Street in Edinburgh, and I got on a bus. And the only thoughts I can remember at this time really were the shoes. I still didn't want to be here anymore. I, that was still my decision. But there was now another counteractive thought saying, this isn't fair. You cannot do this to Siobhan and Rudy. You can't. Uh, so I got on a bus to Glasgow from Edinburgh. And I'd done that journey, I think, three times. Maybe two, maybe three. Back and forth three times on the same bus. The driver must have been thinking, what is this? Is this a drunk up the back of my bus sleeping or something? Like, who is this guy? Um, but I just was so lost in my own mind at that mm-hmm. point. But I also knew that being on the bus would keep me safe because if I sat there and there was people there, I couldn't harm myself. I eventually got back to Glasgow. I remember the time in this because I remember looking up at the screen, but it was like 5 to 8 in the morning by this point. And I just, my decision again was just get another bus somewhere. Like, Get a bus and most we'll, and, and then we'll, re- we'll reevaluate almost. And uh, there was a bus going to Aberdeen. I think at five past eight. I just walked up the guys. Guy, how much is a single to Aberdeen? I think it was thirty odd quid. I was like, okay. Got on the bus to Aberdeen. Again, that was another four hours or so, just wrestling with my mind. The Aberdeen bus stations in a uh, shopping centre, and next to it, there's like a little bridge, and there's ferries that go to or Orkney. I think mm-hmm. I, I contemplated getting a ferry at this point, but I didn't. I sat in the bridge. I don't know for how long. I have no idea for how long. Like probably two or three hours. Just you know, just that way. Just like how did my life get me to sitting on a bridge in Aberdeen mm-hmm. after having tried to commit suicide? And I was just going over everything. Life started from like from my child, from all my earliest childhood memories, over everything. And eventually I just thought, right, I'll get a bus back to Glasgow. And again, it was just a, let's go on a bus and reevaluate at the end of this bus journey. Yeah. Um, and I got to Glasgow, at, I think it was seven, maybe seven at night or six at night or something. But someone who was on the bus, I'd been reporting missing, obviously, by this point, I'd been missing for about 18 hours or something. Someone on the bus had reported sight, a sighting of me on the bus, so... I pulled in at Buchanan bus station. I swear my foot never hit the ground. As I stepped off, my foot never even got to the ground and the policeman said, you Aaron Connolly, yes, grabbed me, handcuffed me. Uh, I was, and I, my, first, my initial reaction was, why are you handcuffing me? What have mm-hmm. I done? Not thinking what I'd just been through. But, and he said to me, he's like, look, you've been reporting missing as a vulnerable person. We know your sporting background. If I, if I approached you uh, and didn't handcuff you, I've got a, like I've got a fair idea that you would probably outrun me. So the police handcuffed yeah. me. 
they asked us, asked me what was going on. They took me to the Royal Infirmary. I spent nine hours in A&E. Um, I was assessed initially by an A&E doctor, and I'll tell the story, but it's, it's not nice, but uh, A&E doctor assessed me. And you, you know the little breathing space, space booklets you get, little pop-out mm-hmm. tiny business-sized card booklets? Any doctor comes in and speaks to me, and my my words to the doctor were, I can't promise you I'll be here in the morning. Those are the exact words I said to this doctor. Yeah. Can't promise you I'll be here in the morning. My wife will fall asleep at some point tonight. Uh, and the doctor said, well, you phone breathing space on Monday now. This is, what, Saturday night? Will you phone breathing space on Monday? And I, I think I've just said yes. I whatever. Get out of the room. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Like, I'm done with this conversation. My head's full of place, I think. And they always assess you alone as well, so no one can interject. So yeah. I've said yes, uh, I'll phone my even space, whatever. Doctor tried to send me home. Said, no, he's fine to go home. He's going to phone breathing space on Monday. Um, and Siobhan, Siobhan doesn't, she gets angry, but she doesn't express it often. Uh, stood up to this any doctor and said, he's not going anything home. <laughs> this is not my husband sitting in front of me right now. Uh, I'm he's not safe and I can't I can't make him safe right now yeah. uh, you need to phone the crisis unit and the crisis team came out and within 30 seconds the guy from the crisis team said we're taking you to Leverndale um, I was assessed again at Leverndale when you get in they say right we'll put you up tonight we'll reassess on Sunday morning I tried to run on the Sunday morning uh, I obviously woke up I was like what what is happening like and again, Sunday morning, I thought, wait, I'm getting away. And this is it. I'm not, I'm not being in a psychiatric unit. I'm not, I don't need to be here. I'm just going to go do that. I'm done again. Uh, I ended up being, yep. I ended up being transferred from the open ward, like the admissions ward, into the locked ward of Levendale for fear of my safety. Spent two weeks there in the locked ward. Um, I've spoken about this moment a lot, but Eventually, after about 12 or 13 days into being locked up. Now, in the locked ward of a psychiatric unit in Leverndale, you don't get outside unless you smoke. I'm not a smoker. So they they would go outside for a smoke. I've never seen outside or breathe fresh air for 13 days. There was a guy who plays football and exercises a lot. I was being cooked up. I, I, I remember the frustration of that. But it was all just purely for safety, and it was absolutely the right decision at mm-hmm. the time. But what, it, what that created in me was when I got outside, and I remember it so clearly... When I eventually got outside, and it was the 10th of May, uh, 2019, actually approaching the anniversary that day, uh, I got a 15-minute break outside alone. I remember the doctor said to me, we've spoken to your wife, we've spoken to the nurses, we're going to give you 15 minutes, please come back. And I just went outside, and it was sunny, actually, and I was just overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed with a gratitude that I had failed to commit suicide. Like, just this pure feeling of absolute relief still to be alive, like I had a second chance. And that's how it feels still today when I, I think about it and I look back and I've had in the last year, there's been ups and downs, of course, but I always go back to that moment. And then the next day, the Saturday, the 11th for me, I think it was, uh, my wee boy, he was coming down to see me while I was in the locked world, but we, I was allowed outside for an hour with him and my wife to go have a run about in the, in the, within the hospital grounds. And there's a picture, and it's on my Twitter and stuff like that. There's a picture of me and my wee boy, and 
Rudy being Rudy brought me a football down. Like you're going to play with Daddy, so he's like, take, like, take Daddy a football. We'll play football. Um. Uh, and there's a picture of me and him chasing this ball in the middle of the Levendale grounds. Um. Um. I don't know how Siobhan's done it, but she's taking this picture, and we're both in the exact same pose, mid run, chasing <laughs> the ball. And that yeah. picture in that moment is the one moment that when times feel a bit rough or I don't feel so good, I just go back into my phone and I just look at that and I say, well, that's, this is what life's mm-hmm. about. And that's yeah. it's the moment that I've spoken about a lot over the last week or so with it being a year on, but like life is worth living. It's for moments like that and it's for moments like so many that I've created in the last year. But uh, that's my story. That's... That is that. That's where we got to. Uh, that's how tough it was last year, and the amount of support and love and well wishes and people reaching out. You know, since I've spoken so openly about it, I was speaking about it from Levendale at the time, tweeting on my phone and stuff, just really engaging. It just, it's amazing to me how much people care and how compassionate people mm-hmm. actually are to us. It's really it's an it's an incredible story, Aaron, and I know Jane was the same. And we really appreciate you sharing that and the brutal honesty of it. And there there was many times during that, as, as tough as it is to listen to, that I was smiling because I understand a lot of the things that you spoke about during it from just from my own experiences. But the one thing I continue to reflect on is that when you're in those moments, just like you said, you think no one would understand you, no one would. would you know, your mind tells you all these self-deprecating things that you're not worth well, nobody will listen to you and all of that. And yet you look at yourself now, 12, 13 months later from when you had those thoughts, you're actually the person who can make the difference. You're the person that you thought no one could ever, you know, help to now being the person that can help. And it's just an incredible journey. Yeah, I mean, I like to think we can make a difference. I always get uncomfortable with the praise that comes around that and when people tell me I'm an inspiration and stuff, it always feels that a bit uncomfortable. But I think we're proving, you know, that speaking openly about it, people can relate to it. People instantly, when I say anything on Twitter or Facebook or anything, it, people instantly are connected to it and can relate. And that's why talking is so important. And listen, I'm not telling people to be, to do what I'm doing. I'm... Obviously, I've been very, very open and I've shared a lot and a lot of personal stuff. And don't get me wrong, there's been some idiots who've got involved with me and I've had some horrible messages. Like just a week or so ago, someone messaged me telling me to die because I was an attention-seeking so-and-so. So I've had that sort of stuff. So I'm not saying that it's all roses and it's all perfect and the garden's all fine. I'm, I still have to do, still have my moments and I still have tough days or tough weeks uh, and I try and speak openly about them but I think the main thing from this and from my story and from me sharing this and it's just just to offer some sort of hope that honestly a year ago this moment a year ago I was probably sitting in, in a locked unit in Levendale hospital staring blankly at a TV thinking what has become of my life like I would have been almost two weeks on from a suicide attempt by this point just a year ago and now I've done countless podcasts, I'm now running a support group and things like that, but the most important thing beyond any of this, and all of this is important, but the most important thing for me is I'm alive, and I'm more alive now than I ever was, because I've worked hard at it, and I've spoken about it, and I've done the work, and I've learned how to be honest, and I'm still learning day on day, but I feel more alive today than I probably ever did up until what happened. It, 
and through adversity comes opportunity. I just really do believe that. Well, absolutely. I think that certainly one of the the beliefs I've got with experiences some of yourself is that I always view myself, and, and maybe you're the same here and, and maybe some listeners are, is that I always view myself as I'm always going to be in recovery. Yeah. I, I think when you your mental health, you can't let go of the fact that you, you can't start thinking, I'm okay, so everything will be okay. Because I think as we both learned, when you revert back to, I'll just go back to working 15 hours, I'll do all of that. Those are the things that you look back on and think that absolutely doesn't work for me. So it's about, for me and, and maybe yourself as well, is recognising, look, look, I think I'm always going to be in recovery. So if I'm always going to be in recovery, <laughs> I have to make sure I look after myself. And, it, and you know, you said that there, you know, I'm a bit like you. I don't have a Mary Poppins life, you know, and talk about it. You think, oh, they must be great. I have bad days like everyone else, but it's on those days you think these are the things I need to do to get me through those days. Uh, and I think that's an important message as I well. One hundred percent. And I think again, I mean, honesty is the key, right? So, and uh, I'm going to go off on a tangent here, like I normally do. But for me, like you say, it's about understanding what works for you, right? Because I've been there and I've done it where you sit down in front of someone and say, "This is how I'm feeling." And they go, "Right, go write a journal, or go do a bit of exercise, or go do this and this and this, and you'll feel better." And do you know what I've learned over the course of time? That not all of those things work for me. I've learned what sure. does work for me, and I've learned what, what works for my life. And then it's about putting that into practice and doing it because you it helps you. So, like, I've over the course of time, I, I love my writing. Michael, I know you do too. I don't share it quite as much <laughs> as you do, but, you know, I'll do that. But I'll go, I'll flutter to and from it. So there'll be times where I really feel like writing works for me. And then there'll be times I go, writing this down won't help, but I'll go and pound the pavement mm-hmm. and that'll help me. And it's and that's all down to experience and going through it and, and working with it. And what's really key and is that it's your own journey, it's your own life. Like you understand what works for you. Don't be getting caught up about what works for Aaron Connolly on Twitter. You see me out running, and you think, "Wow, that works for Aaron. like why I'll just do that. I'm, I need to do that." It might not be for you, but something will be, and you need to yeah. try those things and get there. And through support and speaking, uh, and I'm big on peer support, and that's where the time to tackle is driven from. That if we can get peers together, people with similar lived experiences, then we can help each other sort of understand. Well, I've tried this, and this has helped me, and things like that. But there's, yeah, you know, I think I'm big on that the peer support aspect of it and the lived experiences aspect of helping people. I think you're on. Incredibly strong individually, and to be able to share that. I mean, I had a lump in my throat the whole way through your story there, and it's it's just an incredible story to be able to come out the other end of that and be able to to share your experience. And I'm sure there's so many people that can take so so much away from it. Um, and as well, I think your wife, um, as well, such a strong individual to be able to help and support you through through your time of need. Um, it's as I say, I had an absolute lump in my throat the whole way through that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't. I know a lot of people say this, but I genuinely I couldn't do this without Siobhan. And, and Michael met Siobhan briefly, but um, Siobhan is probably the strongest person I've ever met in my yeah. life, and how she's coped with this. And also, I think what's often forgotten, uh, and what we at Time to Tackle are going to you know, post lockdown are gonna really shift some focus and, and make a commitment to is that the impact that what I went through had on Siobhan and other people in my circle, like the impact on them, how difficult it was for her to constantly be that person propping me up over the last number of years and then the impact of her 
and she's spoken about it in a few uh, a few times as well. But again, it's something that we want to look at for, as a group perspective and think, well, you know, how can we introduce support to those who Absolutely. are living with someone who has a mental who has mental illness or poor mental health, and uh, we have a real commitment driven by Siobhan's experiences. A real commitment to introduce a support network for that too, and a support group that focuses around that. And I think, you know, take the mental health side out of it as well. Sometimes that, and lockdown, and we're probably we're going to come on to it. But I think lockdown has probably made everyone consider it. It's, it's leveled the playing oh, field a little bit, and that so many people previously would have thought would have just been okay. They go about their lives and everything feels fine and they're great. But now. And I I hear the phrase a lot, keeping myself sane. You'll see that, keeping yourself sane, whatever it is you're doing to to keep Mm -hmm. yourself sane. That's likely a coping mechanism that's improving your mental well-being and your mental health. So now we're seeing everyone, everyone can And that's something Michael and I have kind of spoken about a a few times is we hope that it kind of breaks down that stigma a wee bit and it becomes more of the norm to just be asking people, do you know, are you okay? Or or is there anything you want to have a chat about? Or or, or just these wee things, but... um, like you say, I think it will be a time for a lot of people to be reflecting on on their mental health and and how they can help others. Yeah, I think it's absolutely key. I think as well, you know, time to tackle isn't mental health specific. You know, for tackle loneliness and all that sort of stuff. But there's sometimes, and we can all we can all relate to this. There's sometimes that your partner just drives you up the wall, and you go, "I need to get out of the house for an hour, and I need to go and tell someone about this." Where there's not going to be any repercussions at home but I can just get it out because she's doing my head in or he's doing my head in. Or if you have kids and I've got a four-year-old and he's hyper, and right now, the last six weeks of lockdown, him chewing my ear off every two minutes <laughs> while I'm trying to work, I need to get, I need to release that energy sure. sometimes to say, wow, I need to get that out of my mind. And I think that's so key for mm-hmm. everyone. So it's not specific to you need to have no. depression, anxiety, bipolar or anything like that. Like if you, have, if you live any sort of normal life, things mm-hmm. will get to you things will get to you like being followed for example a lot of people on reduced salaries and stuff like that at the minute the impact that has on them financially if they're keeping all of that in they're trying to deal with all of that alone uh, then there's, there's going to be repercussions for your, for your well-being and I think we, everyone needs, is now considering that and that's where groups like Time with Apple we can make a big difference because we can get you together introduce you I think we've got 60 people now across both of our areas introduce you to a bunch of like-minded people who enjoy playing football by the way go play all the stuff i spoke about earlier that i I hated about football you know the the desire to win all the time and winning coming coming at all costs and all that stuff we've stripped we've stripped all that out you play literally Mm -hmm. smile to laugh to joke to create friends and then when we get you in the room afterwards we don't sit you down in a circle and go around you know one by one forcing you to talk and making you tell me Mm -hmm. what's wrong with you you know, some nights we'll just talk absolute nonsense. Michael was on one of our Zoom calls. So B nights we'll just talk absolute nonsense. But you're talking and you're just out there having a little release from the normal reality and, and the difficulties that that brings. I, I mean, I, I loved it and I really appreciated you asking me to um, come and uh, do the Zoom call. Um, and it's incredible. Uh, group of people we've got from different and all walks of life and I, and I think when people hear about football and one of the things I really want is that it's not just for males 
you've got groups and you do the sports and it's not just for blokes or anything like that. And I think that people can sometimes think, oh, it must be football. And I loved that when I came along and to the Zoom thing, that it wasn't just men, it's male and female both openly sitting together talking about the things that were going on in their life. And that's Yeah, fantastic. that was like, it was a massive thing for us um, to to ensure that we were fully inclusive uh, and to and to promote yeah. like male and females getting together and speaking about it. We, Michael, we've spoken about this carefully, but you hear a lot that men don't mm-hmm. want to talk, and it's and it's not yeah. true. Men just need the right people, yeah. and people just mm-hmm. need the right environment to talk. And a male or female, that's totally irrelevant. And we've got an old name checker, but Tara, who started coming to our group, I remember her first night. You know, first female to ever pop along, the bravery that takes to come along to what could be perceived as a sort of male-only group, or it could very easily be perceived as that being football-related. But Tara came along, she the growth in her, you know, in the, the few months that we've gotten to know her, you know, she's been so helpful. And she encourages other females along to her Edinburgh group and things like that. And, and that for us was massive as a group, that we never, ever split that out by gender or anything or by abilities or anything like that like it's just everyone comes together uh, and we get talking and a lot of people do say that there's like they love that it's male and female and that's something that we want to really push on with yeah well done and and as i say that's something i uh, when i came along i completely admired i thought it was great it's breaking down um, and she gender and any potential stigmas that it's a, a, a male mm-hmm. thing or, or not. It's, it's an everyone thing. Mental health, poor mental health is indiscriminate about the, your sex, your race, your colour, uh, your wealth and, and your health. It's indiscriminate. And I think it's a great message that you've got. But one, maybe a, a couple of last points, Erin, um, just that we've got because we're, we're in week seven or eight. I'm kind of losing count of what we're in in lockdown. Um, is there any tips that you could share with us just off the top of your head about you know, some advice for our listeners about um, how you're coping with lockdown but maybe how some people in your group were coping with the, with the lockdown as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think my, so my number one tip, and I've been asked this a couple of times is to try and keep your routine as normal as possible. Now I'm very fortunate, I'm still working mm-hmm. so I need to get up and stuff. I need to get up and get ready. Yeah. Uh, but I think what's, re- what's really helped me uh, is waking up at, uh, at my well, I wake up at my normal time to get to work but getting in the shower is normal brushing my teeth is normal putting clothes on yeah. is normal like, well, I'm not wearing you know, the jeans and stuff like that but you know getting fresh clothes on is normal uh, and then starting my working day and it's something yeah. I've really tried to portray to the group even those who aren't working by all means take advantage by getting an extra hour or two in bed because I would love to do the same if I could but you know when you do get up get yourself up and and go about your morning as you normally would. Um, I think what we're seeing a huge increase in, and it's fantastic to see, and I really hope that it, it, it maintains after lockdown, is people getting outside and mm-hmm. exercising. Now, I've said, I've obviously said it might not work for everyone and things like that, but I'm not saying go out and run, you know, a marathon or a half marathon or try and run 5K in sub 20 minutes like we're seeing over social media and things like that. I think being a, a, a low-level exercise that works for you is probably great too. It'd be going a nice walk or, yeah. you know, doing a light bit of jogging or just getting yourself outside for a, a short period of time, going a little walk your block. Just a little bit of something that gets you up and gets you moving, I think, is massive. And we've seen that in the group. Our group are obviously really missing the football aspect and being able, unable to do that. But a few of them have taken up running. They're doing some running challenges and things like that. 
I've seen a lot of cycling in the group. People bought bikes and got involved in that. And I think exercising that release of endorphins. And I reiterate again, don't go yeah. crazy and hurt yourself, but get up and just do a little bit of something if you can. Um, and the, probably the most important thing is, you know, there's a lot of social distancing is probably a key word, distancing or social isolation, hearing all those words all the time. Don't take it too literally in terms of, yes, distance and isolate yourself physically mm-hmm. from people because that's safe and and we need to do that. But we all, or most of us, have the ability to connect through phones, uh, through laptops and emails and things like that. Make sure that you're continuing to engage and connect with the people close to you because you need them at this time and they need you. So be checking in on each other and make sure that, yes, I know you're hearing a lot about distancing and isolation, but that's physically, that doesn't mean that we have to do it in terms of if we're actually chatting to people. So pick up the phone. You know, we've all got a bit of extra time on our hands mainly. Pick up the phone and speak to someone mm-hmm. for half an hour. Brilliant, Aaron. Aaron, sorry. Uh, the last point I've got, and uh, and I just want to say thanks for your time today. As I said, I know that you're a really busy guy. You've got a lot of things to be getting on with, uh, and uh, you offer a lot of valuable support to a lot of people. So thanks for giving up your time. I kind of like to pay it back to you in some way because I know that you are through Time to Tackle. You're offering care support yeah. packages. Could you maybe just listen to something about that and how they would get in contact with you and, and what would be in those packages. Yeah, so we've okay. been working, obviously, much like loads of groups similar to us, been unable to meet and to, to get together with our participants. So we've been on our Twitter page every day. We do a Time to Tackle daily challenge. Now, don't worry, it's nothing crazy. It's often just go say something nice to someone, do something kind, do a little bit of exercise. So if you are on Twitter, you'll get us at Time to Tackle. We're, we're trying to engage with our online community by doing daily challenges, something just to keep you talking and to keep you engaging with us and also to give you a little goal mm-hmm. to do each day if you are off work and things like that. Uh, we're doing twice weekly Zoom calls. Again, if anyone out there uh, and does listen to this and hasn't engaged with Time to Tackle before, don't worry about that. Get in touch with us uh, on Twitter at, at Time to Tackle or we're on Facebook to look up Time to Tackle. You're more than welcome on to our Zoom calls. Don't worry about that. Uh, about not knowing anyone or anything like that we have new people coming uh, and everyone is welcome to come on and have a chat with us um, but the, the care packages is something we've been working on because we are just trying to keep our engagement up and trying to just keep helping people and keep giving people tools to, to support themselves through what is a really difficult time for everyone I think obviously I've spoken about everyone now considering their mental health so we've come up with the idea of creating time to tackle care packages uh, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what's in them because it's a bit of a surprise if you get one, but no, no. We, what's within these packages are little tools and little things that will help you cope with lockdown. So all of the sort of coping mechanisms that we've discussed right. previously, we are putting together a little package of tools to help you um, and some information about time to tackle and information about some of our partners that will just allow you to reach out if you are struggling. That's fantastic. If you could even send us across the, the your um your Twitter name and, and the link to to everything else, we'll definitely pop it in with with the um, with the episode. Um, thank you so much for your time, Erin. Yep. you you've been fantastic. No, thank you, guys. As I said at the start, I'm always appreciative of people giving me the uh, a platform to to talk about our work and to and to get the message out there that. Uh, life is worth living.